0: Obviously, we had entered a world where central banks were applying huge amounts of liquidity to the global economic system. And liquidity kind of fixes everything until it doesn't, you know, until it causes inflation, until it increases imbalances that ultimately end up breaking things. But I think we're returning to a more normal world. People can't get past their anchoring bias. And, the no- and also the notion that there's a burst of volatility when trends reverse and change direction. That's a universal, the Minsky moments and the anchoring bias, they're here to stay. And so I think, I've, I don't think that trend following is in any sense obsolete. And I think that certainly when you apply it in relatively green pastures, in relatively fresh places, uh, I think the, uh, I, I think there's quite a lot uh, there's quite a lot left for the future.
1: Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world, so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen.
2: Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of Top Traders Unplugged. Where today Alan Dunn and I are joined by Douglas Grinnick, CEO and CIO at Florencourt Capital, as part of our mini series focusing on the one investment strategy. That beat everything else in 2022, namely trend following and managed futures more broadly. First off, Doc, it is great to have you back on the podcast after a few years. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. We have very much been looking forward to our conversation because I know it's going to be a little bit different to some of the other ones we have in the series. And I hope you're doing well where you are. Uh, very well, very well. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, and uh, hello from Abu Dhabi. <laughs> And hello to you. Now, before we dive into the different topics that we're going to be covering today, um, as we do with all the guests, we would like to just set the stage a little bit. Um, So if you don't mind, Doc, can you give us, um, you know, a brief kind of highlight, summary, uh, whatever you call it, um, to uh, Florian Court and uh, where you stand today uh, in terms of the business? Uh, Absolutely. So we're now approaching the
0: sixth anniversary of the Florent court capital program which is a systematic trend following program focused very tightly and exclusively on alternative markets and we're very proud of our results over the last 6 years uh, we ha- you mentioned uh, an excellent year for CTAs in 2022 we had that but we also had an even better year in 2021 and uh, we're approaching now i guess about 2 billion, we're on our way to 2 billion in AUM,
2: and uh, things are going very, very well. Glad to hear that. Now, Doc, um, I want to do something a little bit different with you as the first topic, because although we normally don't give much room for kind of outlook and macro um, views, and that's purely because we're systematic in nature, of course. Um, I do want to ask you about this because I know you have a, a deep background in macro and you follow this. And, but also because I know you have some opinions uh, and ideas about how this might relate to trend following. So do, do you mind talk about this uh, before we uh, kick off our usual topics? I'm, I'm glad to.
0: You see, all- allocators, of course, are very interested in the kind of environment in which they're allocating. They're trying to make decisions. How much trend should I have? How much should I have in, you know, quant equity, long, short, or other strategies? And trend is particularly suitable for an environment that will be characterized by instability, regime shifts, and major changes. You know, if you think back uh, to some of the great years in trend following, those were years where big things happened. Uh, for example, 2008 or last year with the fight against inflation that we've seen across the world. And I just want to point out to people that I think I have never seen a more difficult, unstable, fundamentally unstable environment than we're seeing today. I, I mean, this matter came up in a great interview you did with Nigel and um, uh, um, Michael Harris. Michael? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the point is, we have an extremely unstable situation now. We have very high debt burdens across the developed economies. We have, uh, we have a situation where we're attempting to decarbonize. And th- the reality is that carbonization played such a crucial role in the creation of modernity, fact our prosperity has a great deal to do with the fact that we have I don't know five times more usable energy per person than we did a couple centuries ago and we want to jam that in reverse because we have to in a couple of decades we're creating a situation where across many dimensions political economic energy look at these different things where there's a huge amount of instability and so I think you I think and, you know, allocators need to be thinking really hard about how they want to own the tails instead of getting owned by the tails. And I think, I think trend fits into that. And you know, if, if anybody thinks, you know, this is a really stable, nice environment that's going to settle down, uh, I'd like them to call me and explain to me why and how, because I'm not seeing that instead, I see an outlook full of a great deal of uncertainty. Uh, and and instability, as we have been seeing in the last couple of years.
2: Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that, Doug. I'm sure Alan does as well. And and we, of course, uh, in our other global macro series, we've touched a lot on these uh, different topics. And I, I think you uh, you make a compelling case, um, as I hope we we generally do, for why trend following should be a part of the portfolio. Now, let's get back to our regular programming here um because what we normally do of course is that we have Alan kick off the first uh, topic and then we just see how the conversation goes. So Alan, good to see you and uh, where where are we
3: heading? Thanks, uh good thanks Neils and uh good to speak to you Doug. Um Doug, you outlined, uh, I guess, the um, the nature of the Florincourt uh, Capital Programme with that focus on systematic trend following and the focus on alternative markets. So I guess the question is, you know, why trend following and why alternative markets?
0: Well, tr- trend following is is a kind of evergreen strategy that has worked very, very well over the years. I mean, there are folks who have gone back and and looked at a century of data, even two centuries of data. And, of course, we have the direct experience in recent decades of systematic trend followers. And it's a strategy that works well for a good reason. And that is trends tend to reverse with a burst of volatility. And that interplay of volatility and trend is actually key to the process. And think about, for example, a Minsky model. Charles Kindleberger, in his book Manias, Panics, and Crashes, presented a narrative model for how bubbles rise, get big, and then burst. But the same thing actually happens at a smaller level. A trade will appear appealing, there will be a good idea behind it, it develops momentum, more people pile into that particular trade, whether it's a big one or a small one, it goes to a certain point, it gets overextended, and then there's a bit of distress and increased volatility as a general rule, and then it reverses. And capturing that trend and then getting out when you get that burst of volatility is the essence of a good trend uh, following program. And that's why rapid vol scaling is so important. So trend is is a wonderful strategy that depends largely on the behavioral bias of anchoring. Uh, People have trouble interpreting new information without reference to the past. Uh, In fact, they probably should look at the past, but it means that when novel things show up or there are big dislocations uh, in the macro environment, such as the environment we're in now, Things don't necessarily move where they need to go as quickly as they should. And no one is actually sure where they need to go. There's a process of price discovery. You get that trend. And so it, trend is basically a pretty wonderful strategy. I don't think I need to convince you guys oh. or your listeners. <laughs> I think we can. I mean, it's, it's like, uh, you know, you know why it's good. Although the role of volatility around trend reversals that I just highlighted is underappreciated for sure. And uh, why, I guess... Why why
3: take that philosophy and apply it specifically to, to alternative markets?
0: Well, as, as other guests have commented on and as you guys know, I mean, you're super experts, trend following will often go through periods of what should I say, quiescence, where you're not making a lot of money. And, and sometimes people have trouble hanging on to trend following in those periods. Now, uh, because they have that tail protection and they're sort of paying some money for insurance or it's kind of flattish and nothing's really happening and can you really wait for the next big thing, which, of course, n- no one ever really knows exactly when that will come along. So there are a number of different solutions to this. One solution that I don't particularly like is to reduce the convexity that you're creating. Through your trend following trading, because remember, when you're trading trend, if you're doing it in a pretty pure way and you're doing it fast enough, you're, you're you're synthesizing convexity. So one idea is to sort of collect risk premia to sort of sell some convexity in certain places, and you know, earn some extra carry to try to ride out those ride out those periods. I think it's a bad idea because I think it dilutes. It dilutes the great benefits of the trend following program, the positive skew, the so-called crisis alpha and all that. But there's another approach and that's to increase diversification. And the way you increase diversification is you add new markets that are genuinely diversifying. You know, when you add a market like regional carbon emissions in the U S that's genuinely diversifying. To, to the kinds of things that you are likely to have, whether you, if you add Malaysian palm oil, when you when you talk about um, you know emerging market interest rates, Turkish interest rates, Colombia, these are these tend to be pretty different from the standard CTA markets, and as a consequence, you end up with a sufficient number of relatively independent bets and ideas that there's sort of a trend there's always a trend going on somewhere and and as a consequence the returns are better in addition things are less crowded and less crowded in, in in the world of these alternative markets and so you have better diversification better trends and you know following Papa John's slogan that makes better pizza and uh And there you are. That's why we do what we do. And I guess, I mean, with managers who
3: focus on alternative markets, and obviously, you know, you have, I guess you have two types of managers, people who trade the major markets and add alternative markets, and then other people who maybe focus on the alternative markets. you know, one of the arguments for the alternative markets is, as you say, maybe they're less crowded, maybe they're less efficient, not as many people trading them. Um, so, maybe they trend better, or is, is, that, is that a big part of the, the, the opportunity there? Or is it just that they trade about as well as the major markets,
0: but, but adding them gives you that diversification? You, uh, the diversification argument is certainly correct. That's indisputable, really. However, the the better trends argument is probably true but it is harder to demonstrate the diversification is just straightforward. Either way, you end up if you do pure trend following in across a big set of alternative markets, you know, with roughly double the Sharpe ratio, you know, over the past decade or so versus uh standard markets trend following. And 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 you all and you, but you retain the nice skew, the nice tail characteristics it's a good it's a good way to do things because you don't want to become less like a cta by having risk premium strategies and and junk and filler in your program instead if you just expand out the diversification you're going to get a lot of benefit and you probably get some better trends too and uh, just so every just for, for the benefit of our listeners, um,
3: within your program, you're, you're focused—is it purely on the alternative markets, and you're not trading the major markets, or are you trading both with, with a, a heavy emphasis on, on the alternatives?
0: We're about as pure as you can get in the alternative markets. Um, you know, we will trade something like New Zealand interest rate swaps, but we're not—we're staying away from uh, U.S. and uh, U.S. and just G three. IRS and, and bonds, and so you know the, the focus is very purely on alternative markets. And there's a good reason for this too. If you're talking to us about potentially allocating to us, the odds are extremely high that you're already an experienced CTA investor. You already have that exposure to developed markets, and you don't need more. You don't need overlap. So. The, the point is we offer the orthogonal alternative markets pure play that will be very additive, we hope, to what you're doing. Great. And Nils?
2: Yeah, and I want to stay a little bit on this, and maybe kind of uh, mix some of the topics up that we have, because um, you you open obviously uh, an interesting set of areas where we can go, um, and and it comes down to the fact that you are focused on these uh, alternative markets, as you say, Doc. But you so you do two things that I find interesting. Um, one, on one hand, you say we we are the you know very very pure trend. But then at the same time, you reference the sharp ratio, which is something that normally pure trend uh, doesn't do so well. Um and in fact, as we know from Cliff Asness's paper last year, um, you know, he's arguing or he's questioning whether we as CTAs even should care too much about the sharp ratio per se. and um, because if we do, we may lose some of the um sort of the things that people, uh, those of us who love trend following, actually um see as, as a benefit. So, so I'm curious about your view on, on, on Sharp. I mean, is that something that you really pay a lot of attention to or is it just something where you say, well, if I compare what we do and what a traditional trend follower will do in in, in the liquid market space or traditional market space, um, we think there is a, a benefit of, of Sharp purely from the diversification, quote unquote, if, if the trend side is more or less similar. Sharp in itself is a very
0: incomplete measure. That is a completely correct point. You need to care about skew. You need to care about kurtosis. You need to care about drawdowns and not just um, and not just sort of a daily or weekly sharp ratio. But my point is that you can take trend following, keep it pure, own the tails, focus on crisis alpha not dilute it one bit and get a much better sharp ratio because you're willing to do the heavy operational lift to trade a much bigger set of diversifying markets. It's not about adding more line items. It's about having really diversifying different things in there. And, 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 and by, but by trading them with trend, you're getting, you're getting good sharp. You're not getting, shall we say, um, uh, a, a sort of uh, dilutive, crappy, sharp where your skew is reduced or where you've uh, gotten yourself more kurtosis.
2: Now you mentioned another term that, uh, of course, is also uh, uh, certainly associated with with the CTAs and and trend following. That's the crisis alpha term, which I think. Also, um, Cliff Asnes, uh referenced in his paper where he talked about, um, you know, do we have this dual mandate of absolute return and as well as producing Crisis Alpha? But actually, during this uh, series of conversations Alan and I have had, uh, it certainly has become clear to us, I think, that uh, the term Crisis Alpha has kind of gotten lost in translation since it was originally invented and to what people think of it uh, today. H- how do you view, what, what do you associate with crisis alpha, uh, Doug? Well, it
0: is a slippery term, okay? You have to define what do you mean by a crisis. And to some extent, the term was invented by CTAs who don't have very good day-to-day risk-adjusted returns, but occasionally make a lot of money when there's a major dislocation. So... But I don't want to use crisis alpha as some kind of an excuse for poor day-to-day returns because you can actually have them both. You can have reasonably good day-to-day returns and have performance in uh, sort of large dislocations. But basically the notion is that when there is a major sustained move in markets, and it needs to be major and it needs to be sustained a bit, you want to be able to perform. And that's usually associated with moving from one kind of regime to another. For example, moving from uh, the great moderation where inflation was under control, or the great liquidity, which was, I guess, I don't know, it's not maybe not the best term, but it's the term that I can use for the post-great financial crisis period when central banks sprayed the world with so much liquidity. Moving from that to an inflationary environment is a big, big regime shift, and it's a and it will involve a big, sustained move. And by the way, anchoring bias was very much in evidence because people just couldn't quite believe, you know, where interest rates were going. So it had to get there step by step, and capturing that—that's an example of uh, of this sort of regime shift alpha. An- another uh, another example was. Uh, the uh, how there's been a regime shift in terms of energy security. You see, the uh, returning to my macro comments for one moment, we had it, it very nice in the post World War II period, relatively speaking. The world was unipolar. There were very there was in general low energy costs. There were a lot of things globalization. You had a lot of things working for you. Now, so many of those things are in question or are crumbling. We're probably moving to a multipolar world. Uh, The era of cheap energy is probably kind of behind us. We're running into various resource constraints. There are a lot of things going on. Now, those things represent regime shifts, okay? And that is precisely why I tend to think that we're going to see some major sustained moves in markets as they look for a new equilibrium for this new environment. So maybe we should call it regime shift alpha instead of crisis alpha. But oftentimes, regime shifts and crises coincide. They sort of, a, a crisis is a regime shift that happens very quickly perhaps, but it sometimes can be other things. Yeah, I mean, I think it'd
3: be good to delve into the whole kind of some of the issues around alternative markets and the philosophy of of focusing on that. And so it opens up a lot of issues. Um, You know, the obvious thing is liquidity. Um, So, you know, obviously you have to satisfy yourselves once you're moving into these less traded markets that the liquidity is there. So, so, So that's one thing. How do you get comfort around that? But the second thing is, are the nature of the markets themselves stable and continuous enough to be able to trade confidently as well? Or, or you know, say if you take something like I don't know if you trade the VIX, but but the, the nature of the VIX, the return distribution is very different um, than say the S and P 500. Um, you know, you've got you've got much fatter tails. You've got potentially discontinuous moves like we saw in Volmageddon. I guess when you're assessing individual markets, how, how do you get comfortable that, 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 that they will be stable enough to trade
0: and that liquidity is there to to, to, to execute? Well, well, you study them carefully. You study them carefully. I mean, you, you study the distributional properties of the markets. You do the work needed for that operational lift you understand the details of trading those markets it's a process we're super super familiar with i mean we add 50 new markets a year 50 to 70 new markets a year uh, like like for example those uh, uh, regional carbon emissions and and you know all sorts of stuff so so we we're, we're, we're sort of specialists in this process which is precisely why you probably don't want to go with folks that don't do this for a living this is, sort of, this is all we do. That's it. And so when you come to something, you mentioned something like the VIX, you, you, you will notice that it has very different distributional properties. And by the way, why would you expect the VIX to trend? The one case where it used to be arguable that the VIX can trend is simply because there was a, uh, there was a term structure to the VIX that was excessively upward sloping. And so you'd roll down. You get vol roll down and and that would impart a small trend. That's probably true. But uh, as we saw in volmageddon, the tails are huge there. The tails are huge there. In general, we like markets that don't have extreme kurtosis. With volatility scaling, you can manage your vol. uh, You can manage skew um, with choosing the right trend models. You can manage it to a degree. Kritosis is something that's very difficult to manage, and about the only thing you can do is be very small there or ignore it entirely. Uh, it's not necessary to trade every market in the world. Let's trade the ones that are suitable for trend following and have nice distributional properties or orthogonal, more or less, to the things that we do. And there are a lot of markets around the world like that. It's not, you know, it's, it's it's not impossible to find them at all.
3: So, well, maybe just on that point, if you could give us a sense, as you say, like there's so many markets you could trade. Obviously, everybody's talking about carbon emissions, European power and gas markets, etc. But like, once you move beyond the standard fifty or eighty markets, futures markets, you know, there's there's ETFs, there are single stocks, there's sectors of, of stocks, there's uh, synthetic spreads. Um, so, so how do you kind of look at that whole universe and, and determine? Okay, this is a suitable market to, to trade. It, it could be diversifying. It's it's going to be valuable enough for us in our portfolio.
0: Well, well, first off, we 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 very much like interest rate markets, interest rate swap markets around the world. They're very interesting. Uh, they tend to be markets where you can make money. We trade dozens of markets. and and, and interest rate swaps, and and it's been a very productive sector for us. Um, Obviously, we try to get as much exposure to power markets everywhere, not just Europe. Uh, We're involved globally in power markets. So those are very good things that are sort of orthogonal to to other stuff. Um, We tend to not emphasize equities very much. It's our experience, it's our view that CTAs who delve deeply into equities don't usually do as well as specialized equity managers. Okay? It's, it, it's it, it, you know, there's a very advanced game in developed market equities, and by and large, CTAs aren't playing it. However, emerging market equities are potentially interesting, and, and simpler things can work there. Then we, then we, we have, we have credit markets. The main challenge in credit is there tends to be a bit of an asymmetric distribution. Things widen faster than they tighten. But, but there are things you can do with the modeling to try to take that into account. And we do that. Commodities. Again, very interesting. We're, we're, we're obviously very involved with the Chinese commodities markets. We have been for years. Uh, they're liquid. They're big. And there's a, there's a bit of an operational lift to get involved, as in these other markets. That's the distinguishing feature, not low liquidity. It's the operational lift. And also just doing your homework on talking to the market participants and making sure that the liquidity you think is there, is there. So it requires specialized attention to do this stuff. And, and, and that's what we do. Um, but uh, but uh, liquidity... liquidity The markets that you don't like, let me make one more observation on liquidity. What I don't like is some crappy, ignored market that nobody cares about, some futures contract that no one's interested in, and it's illiquid all the time. What's more common is a market like Turkish interest rates, where most of the time it's reasonably liquid, and occasionally during a crisis it sort of becomes illiquid, but it's usually moving your way because as a trend follower as as things start to break apart, for example, you'll be getting short, right? And so it will be moving your way and it, te- and, and, and it results in an exaggerated move in the direction that you're already trading in. Um, and so most of the time when an emerging market has a problem, you know, I'd say about 80% of the time, we end up doing pretty well as a consequence.
2: Can I just jump in here with a question, sorry, Alan, to interrupt your flow here? But but I, I, you you mentioned a few things that I highly agree with, um, but it also makes me a little bit curious um, in terms of your view on it. You mentioned regime change. Uh, we uh, I agree with that. Uh, you mentioned that the world is going from a globalized world since the Second World War into a deglobalizing world. I completely agree with that. But here's the question: Then I can kind of I, I can fully understand. That in a globalized world where everybody are friends, we all trade together. It's not a problem trading with the Chinese, but in a deglobalizing world where we already now see a war with Russia, we don't exactly know where China stands on this. Uh, will they get more involved or less involved? There might be other countries that we are not as friendly with as we were, um, you know, a year ago. We have uh, already seen banks go down, so counterparty risk has come. We've been reminded that there's something called counterparty risk, and of course, CTAs have always been known for being on exchange, yet when you have to trade alternative markets, you have to go off exchange. Is there anything in your view, Doc, that may suggest... That there are some new risks in being off exchange in alternative markets in countries that are not long no longer our great trading partners, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, that might make you th- kind of a little bit more cautious, uh, or maybe do things differently uh, operationally, perhaps, to how you were doing it when everything was great and hunky dory. You bet. That's a that that that, that that's a great
0: question. First off, you you're always you should always as a CTA be thinking very, very carefully about counterparty risk and bad situations because a lot of the times our best profit opportunities, we do the best in some bad situation. And you don't want to be hobbled by some counterparty problem in exactly the situation when people who have invested in you are expecting to do well and maybe your positions are doing well but there's some issue. So we think about that stuff all the time. So first off, we absolutely minimize bilateral kind of counterparty risk. And a lot of the stuff that we trade, even if it traded off, even if the trade was done off exchange, it is cleared through the exchange. And that takes counterparty risk off the table. Uh, We, in many cases, we're able to novate what we do. So we're only facing the most creditworthy counterparties. And we've thought about this issue very much in, in trying to figure out how onshore we want to be with China. Because you know, we do a lot of trading in Chinese commodities. And then the question is: how onshore do you want that to be? And we were a pioneer in doing this offshore through swap structures. We were one of the very early, early people in all of this. And the advantage of that is you don't end up with a situation where money gets trapped on shore if a dispute arises between the US and China. Now, I, uh, just to be clear, I have a pretty positive view of China, and I think China has been playing nice on the international scene. At least it has been doing so in, in recent years. But the problem can arise also from the US end. There's a lot of political momentum behind getting tough on China, sanctioning China, giving people a hard time if, if they're too engaged or in, in the wrong way. I mean, you saw the semiconductor sanctions, which were, in my opinion, a very aggressive act on the part of the US. And so you have to be thinking about these things and make sure that the way you do business is going to be robust to you know the kinds of problems that are likely to arise as we move to a multipolar world and as the U.S. and U.S.-Chinese frictions probably increase. I hope they don't, but they're likely to. Yeah, maybe just uh, picking up on, on a couple of things
3: that we, we were mentioned earlier. Uh, Doug mentioned 2022 was a good year, but 2021 was an even better year. And, you know, obviously when you trade a lot of the alternative markets, I'm guessing you're getting uh, exposure to lots of Idiosyncratic risks in those markets, whereas twenty twenty two was more of a, I suppose, of a of a macro uh, dislocation and and obviously a big move in traditional markets in in bonds. So I'm just curious, um, do you think that 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 kind of crisis? Well, <laughs> we're not going to call it the crisis alpha characteristic, but that ability to 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 make returns in in kind of equity downturns. Is that as, as stable, do you think, in the alternative markets, given that, um, you know, maybe they're not as linked to um, macro, uh, that the, the micro factors may be as big a driver of, of those markets?
0: Well, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I've thought about this, um, you know, and the answer is not clear because alternative markets are very linked to macro stuff. It's just a more global view of what's macro. Okay? A more inclusive view of what's macro. For example, 2021, we did very, very well in commodities. And that was a macro reopening story in large part. It's not so micro. Okay? We did quite decently in fixed income because 2021 is when we started to see emerging market central banks take the lead. They were moving first before uh, the developed market central banks were really you know, focusing on inflation. And then of course there were the power markets in 2021 where we saw some big trends, there were big trends in 2021, long before the Ukraine situation really blew up. So there there were, there was a good mixture of stuff. Yes, we definitely can catch idiosyncratic trends, but I would say, to be honest, we're, we're not making our big money from a big idiosyncratic trend in New Zealand milk that's that's not where the money comes from it comes from big things like emerging market interest rates moving higher uh, or a big regional shift like uh, you know latin american currencies or interest rates you know it's nice to make money on 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 idiosyncratic things and of course as i said we've done very well in in some of the emerging market countries uh, who have regrettably made policy errors and and and, and have seen Falling currencies and spiking interest rates. I'd say we've done pretty well in Turkey. Let's say four times in the last five years, something like that, with those kinds of situations. I know a I know number
3: of markets is a topic uh, close to, to Neil's heart, so won't go there. But 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 maybe just on that, the whole topic of maybe alternative markets, and and you know you mentioned interest rate swaps being. A very interesting market and obviously what you have in a lot of countries like you don't have a maybe a, a local bond future but you have a swap markets so and now that, that that's facilitated trading interest rates in those markets do you think you know in five ten years time it'll be th- those markets won't be regarded as alternative from a trend following perspective and most ctas will probably end up trading trading
0: those ones as well it's hard to know i mean obviously there is over time a tendency for markets to become more popular and commoditized. I would say there's been some pretty decent CTA participation in the very basic European power markets, you know, Felix and Nordpool and stuff like that. And interestingly enough, it hasn't hurt the returns, okay? Hasn't, you know, the last couple of years have been outstanding in the power markets. So it's not clear that more CTA participation up to a certain point will be a bad thing. It is probably clear that if you have only CTA's participating or mostly CTA's participating, which might be the case in some, like I don't know, uh, some of the markets on the London Metals Exchange have some very heavy CTA participation. Probably the sharp ratio has declined in those. But uh, but as I pointed out earlier, the key the key to our good risk adjusted performance is is first and foremost diversification. And and I think these markets will continue to be diversifying. You know, and if you if you count the number of independent bets using statistical methods in a CTA regular CTA portfolio versus the sort of portfolio we trade, the number of independent bets is up by something like a factor of 4. And that, and that roughly means risk-adjusted performance is up by a factor of two. And that's, what, and that's what the experience has been. So it is probably true that more CTAs will get into this, but it's an awful lot of work in some cases. And, then we, and that's part of the reason we keep adding more markets. Every year we, add, we try to add 50 to 70, and, we, and we're finding them. And we're finding them they there and, and they're often very interesting markets, whether you're adding, uh, you know, as we did a few years ago, wet freight, you know, from uh, the Middle East to the China Gulf, which actually behaves quite differently from container freight. So, you know, there's there's so many markets and hopefully by focusing on this one activity, you know, we can we can end up being the best or one of the very best at it.
2: Well, may, may, maybe the LME is going to come out with this new market called Stone, because apparently when you uh, expect nickel delivery, you get a bag of Stone, <laughs> I understand.
0: <laughs> what a debacle that whole thing was. What a debacle. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm very glad I wasn't involved in that. But uh, I can yeah. understand the consternation of those who were there.
2: Okay. Well, I, you know, we've talked a lot about markets, Right. Let's not forget about the trend part you do. So I'm kind of curious in terms of when you decide to go down the route of focusing on alternative markets. Do you have to do the trend following part a little bit different? Do you have to slow it down, uh, for example, or I mean, I'm just just I just don't want us to not uh, talk about the trend part of your of your strategy because that is equally important as the alternative market part. So, can you talk about the trend part? How you approach it? Whether you've changed it over the years? Um, and just generally, um, I mean, obviously, you came from a big trend following shop. So, just generally, maybe how you do trend following? Perhaps a little bit different to the people that um, that you know. A lot of the people we've been speaking to on the channel, if if at all. Well, what we what we try
0: to do is take advantage of model diversification. So we have a whole range of smooth momentum and, shall we say, breakout or jump momentum models uh, uh, being applied at once. We don't want to overfit. I mean, I've heard some of your other guests talk about it, and, and most of the good people get it about right, which is to say... You adjust models a bit for liquidity and for some special market characteristics, but don't go too crazy because otherwise you'll just be overfitting the models in a terrible way and won't have good out of sample performance. You want robustness. I I would say one of the things that we have taken into account is in some of the markets that can move far and fast, we we use a bit more breakout type systems in order so that you don't stay on the wrong side of a big, fast move too long. Um, I mean, that's something we care a lot about. The other thing we care about is the measurement of volatility. There are better and worse ways to measure volatility for volatility scaling. And we think we do it in probably one of the very best ways because we're using range estimators of volatility as opposed to uh, what we think are much cruder close-to-close measures, wherever we can use those range estimators. I would say the big thing that we do is we allocate differently. We allocate differently. We are trying to maximize the diversification benefits in our book. And that means that our, our capacity is smaller than others, okay, and we allocate more to a broad range of markets. Essentially, we're sort of aiming to allocate about as much risk to everything. Now, you obviously have to take some clusters and correlations into account. But philosophically, we want each market to be capable of moving the needle. And we want to max allocate in a way that maximizes diversification. And that's very different in the, uh, from a strategy of trying to maximize capacity, okay? And that's what separates us, I think, from some of our peers. We know we're not trying to be a $10 billion fund, okay? That's not in the cards for this program. This program is going to be a $3, $3.5 billion program when it's completely full, and that's that's what it's going to be. And that keeps us nimble, that keeps us small, and it helps explain why our returns have been uh, sort of, I would say, class-leading because you need to be the right size and you need to be very well diversified to get the full benefit of this alternative market philosophy.
2: Yeah, no, I completely agree. Uh, I I appreciate that. But just for me to fully then understand, so you are not necessarily trading all markets using the same models. So you have like a market model type combination is that correctly understood? Doug? Um,
0: yes, but the, but it doesn't differ that much. For example, if you're trading in a mar- trading in a market that tends to have some negative skew, okay, then you might want to include certain kinds of breakout models to protect you, should that market start. You know, in the case that market starts to take off to the downside. So, but generally speaking, we are using very similar models across all the markets with an appropriate adjustment for liquidity and slightly different mixes depending on some special characteristics that a sector like credit might have.
2: Okay, fair. And and in terms of other parameters, so to speak, do you generally tend to use the same time frame across markets or is that also more tailored? I know you mentioned just before that some you slow down a little bit, but just sort of more generally speaking? Generally speaking, we
0: use... Well, there are some differences. There are some differences. We trade, uh, we trade FX relatively quickly, OK? Uh, the, way, the way we trade FX, it acts as a risk buffer, if you will, against slower-moving markets that we can't trade as quickly. Uh, the return to trading FX is not that brilliant. But the marginal effect on the portfolio is very good. In a certain sense, it's almost like the effect of a CTA in a regular portfolio. Do you see what I'm saying? You put the CTA in there, and suddenly it has a magical effect on the overall process. Well, we found that we tend to do very well in our FX program in exactly those moments when some of the slower moving systems in interest rates or in the other markets are getting hurt a little bit. And, and so, so we go a bit faster there, for example. So there's a bit of difference from sector to sector. We tend to be, we're, we're probably quicker in Chinese commodities than almost any of our competitors. And I think uh, we, it's worked out well for us. Um, and But the models are very similar. You have to be, I mean, I don't have to tell you this. You guys are experts. And many of the people listening in will know this, of course. You don't want to be overfitting. OK, so so you allow yourself a little bit of room to maybe trade this sector a little faster than that sector or to include maybe more uh, breakout type models in this place as opposed to that place. But you you really want to be absolutely mindful that everything you're doing, you're doing for a good reason and that you don't become back test junkies that is a very bad way to proceed. We're very structural in, in that way. In many cases, we'll specify uh, certain aspects of our model as opposed to estimate it, precisely to avoid that backtest bias, if
2: you want to call it that Alan, where are we heading next in terms of topic?
3: Yeah, maybe if we delve into uh, risk management a little, uh, just to get a sense on is the risk management process different once you delve into the alternative markets. And um, I guess one thing I'm thinking about is if you have trading lots of different markets and Doug mentioned, uh, you know, that the number of independent bets is much higher you're very much harnessing that low correlation across all the different markets. So I guess then you you lever up because you get that diversification benefit, but does that give you a risk then of kind of a correlation risk of a sudden sharp change in correlation? And does, it, does that have to be managed? Um, and I guess more generally, uh, yeah, is the risk management framework any different because you're applying um, trends to to lots of alternative markets than in the more traditional uh, programs?
0: Um, well, well, the first thing to realize is we end up having a lot of small positions, okay? Because as I said, we try to spread the risk out in order to maximize diversification, and um, and we are and we're not using some delicate covariance analysis where you're kind of pivoting this against that. The, it, it almost has a bit of a, almost one over N like quality after taking certain factors into account. So we end up with small positions, relatively small positions in a lot of things. And that keeps us, keeps us manageable, it keeps us nimble, it allows us to trade relatively quickly and relatively easily, especially when you combine that with our capacity, uh, our, our sort of low capacity approach. So that, that is a key element in the risk management. You know, the other thing is that we, we do not take a significant amount of equity beta in our program. We, again, I don't think that fits in with the alternative markets approach in general, you know, in general, it's not a good way for CTAs to make money. I think. And uh, and certainly I will leave that to the developed market CTAs to do that. For us, you know, we stay within reasonably tight bounds in terms of beta exposure, very seldom being more than 0.3 or -0.3 on the on the overall book. So so that's another component that's another component of risk management. We also measure as we size things the realized correlations among the different components of the model and gear things dynamically so that we're tr- we're, so that we're moving toward our volatility target one of the things that's unusual about us is we actually hit our volatility targets pretty accurately there are many CTAs that don't really hit their vol targets and you know since inception we've had a volatility target of 10 and you know, we're incredibly close to that. I, I mean, I think we were like 10.03 when I checked a few weeks ago and 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 over any six month period, you know we, we seldom uh, uh, realize more than 11 or less than eight or nine. We're right you know, you know we're right around that 10 mark. And that comes from our continuously measuring the the uh, the correlation and uh, the volatility of the return streams from the various models and and dynamically adjusting. So it sounds like that daily, I guess it's daily adjustment of position
3: sizing is key to that. I, I suppose just following up on my question, I'm just curious, would you say is the gross exposure level of a program like this higher than you would get in a traditional
0: markets trend following program? Probably very slightly but because, simply because we have a lot of commodities, we have a lot of power. They tend to be uncorrelated with things, you know. I guess things it, that are uncorrelated. I guess you have, you have to adjust have to that to- gross, gross exposure
3: too. But adjusting uh, for that, um, I mean, you're saying you have lots of small positions, but you have lots of
0: positions. So um, I, that, that's right. Yeah. And so, and, and, so uh, and so, the multiplier from that is probably is going to be a bit larger. Okay. Um,
3: maybe just one more on the, on this topic obviously you started off with you know referencing the kind of the 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 macro um backdrop i mean is that something that you think having that macro appreciation becomes more important in in kind of market selection Uh, you know neil's mentioned you know the trade in chinese markets you know how much of a concern from a from a, a geopolitical perspective that we had an issue with china and you know, you can't get your money out or capital controls. We've seen this kind of in Malaysia in the past, uh, you know, obviously we've had challenging conditions in Turkey recently. So is, is, that, is that something you think is important or, or, or not uh, when you move into these more, more, more alternative markets?
0: It's important from two angles. One angle obviously is you have to be aware about uh, the political risks and stuff. And that's precisely why we have chosen to sidestep the problem of having money stuck in china okay we're avoiding that by the uh, from the way we tra- uh, we trade uh, you know we we are in, we're in general dealing with counterparties outside of china who then have uh, subsidiaries and so forth inside and so uh, we're sidestepping the issue to a very large degree but it, but it also points you in a different way i don't know if you've seen the work of like vaslav smil or mark meals uh, certainly, you might have might have seen um, what's the name? Robert Friedland of Ivanhoe talking about the outlook for commodities and the fact that decarbonization is going to be an incredibly commodity-intensive enterprise. We need to rebuild the power grid to be able to handle electric vehicles and renewable and Uh, Sustain, you know, renewable sources of energy. Um, uh, Electric vehicles themselves need a whole variety of minerals in their batteries. A lot of the changes that are underway right now point you in the direction of saying this is a regime shift for the molecular economy. In some ways, we spend too much time thinking about the digital economy. The real bottleneck is a bunch of molecules like nickel and lithium and copper, stuff like that. And so with that in mind, I, I think it is a very, very worthwhile to make sure that you have the exposure to those kinds of markets because that's where I think a big regime shift over the next decade is likely to occur. There's been huge underinvestment, I might add, in energy, in, in, in traditional energy and in resource extraction. We're not very well set up for the, the green revolution, and decarbonization, which is being mandated by governments. So tell, So, you know, on one hand, you make the good point, in the multipolar world, be very careful about getting your money, uh, about how you deal with countries that may be falling out with each other. OK, agreed, absolutely, and we are. Uh, but it also tells you, you really want to be participating in markets like Chinese commodities, if you can, if you can do so in a safe and appropriate way because those markets are going to move over time. That, I think that's something you can really bank on, that, that people are just beginning to figure out that we don't have the materials we need to achieve our goals in terms of sustainable and renewable energy and decarbonization. And so what's going to happen as you know these forces collide? reality, and our goals.
2: Yeah, no, I I mean, I very much um, agree with the fact that I think commodities uh, will play a very important role in uh, investor portfolios. And of course, uh, a a great way of accessing those um, are through CTAs, uh, because sometimes we think, these things will happen much quicker, and I remember a year ago, uh, people thought about, you know, oil at $200 and well, $300, and yet we find it at $65 a year later. So, you know, being long and short is is makes, I think, these markets even more attractive. But it opens another question that I'd love to hear your thoughts about, and you decide, Doc, how, how, how you want to respond, but do people... Given you're trading uh, in like, in alternative markets, given you're trading in venues that are not um, that are a little bit further away from from home, so to speak, do people raise the point about ESG with you guys more than maybe with other managers? And 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 how how is that area? How is that topic discussed from from your point of view? No, it it really hasn't
0: been raised with us more than with any other manager, and. We're doing what we can to be responsible and to be reasonable. Okay. Um, we made, we, we made, we made a decision to stop trading coal a few years ago. Now, you know, you can argue whether or not it's the right decision because in reality, coal will be an important part of the energy mix for many developing countries for many years but in the developed world there are better ways there are better ways to generate energy than coal it's not even one of the nicer fossil fuels in general so we took that step so we're conscious of we're conscious of these issues but it's not particularly brought up with us um and in, in, in any un, unusual degree and and I and and I believe that we have taken some steps so that we're carbon neutral as a firm okay uh
2: yeah no no I mean I think that 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 that's fine the other kind of a little bit different uh, question I wanted to ask you um because uh and not many uh, we can't ask uh, many firms this question because they're all based in New York and London or whatever but you've Decided, and I don't know exactly know uh, when 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 it happened to kind of um, have offices, um, you know, one in London, of course, but also in a in a in a different region compared to where we find CTAs. Although there are lots of CTA investors uh, where where you are now in in Abu Dhabi, can you tell me a little bit about whether there's any advantages uh, uh, or disadvantages, um, you know, for, to being in in Abu Dhabi, or whether it's just a lifestyle choice?
0: Well, it, it, if you're trading markets around the world and around the clock, the way Court Capital is, you need to have trading desks in multiple time zones. You certainly need two time zones. And what are your choices for a more eastern time zone than London? You could go to Hong Kong and Singapore, which are fine choices and great cities, or you could go to... Dubai slash Abu Dhabi. That's another alternative. There aren't a lot of other choices, I think. I'm not leaving very much off the list there. And the United Arab Emirates has a very, very beautiful time zone because it overlaps substantially with London, but it's four hours ahead. And that allows you to have two functioning offices that feel like one. But if you have London and you have Hong Kong, the, the the hours are so divergent, there's less overlap, there's less interaction. It, 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 you're not gonna make that feel like one office or even approximately one office. In addition, at the time I was making this decision, uh, both Hong Kong and Singapore had very, very strict travel restrictions um, and they, they were battling COVID. Uh, with a, in a rather draconian way and and it just wasn't even feasible really to consider them so I ended up choosing Dubai slash Abu Dhabi so then the choice is what do I think about Dubai what do I think of Abu Dhabi well I have friends in Abu Dhabi so lovely laid-back lifestyle the Abu Dhabi uh, you know the Abu Dhabi ecosystem welcomed us and it's it's an absolutely terrific place. It's a very very orderly, um, it's a very orderly society. It's got beautiful weather weather for eight months of the year, um, you know. And, and 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 so we're glad we came. And uh, I have an office in London. We have about ten people there. We have ten people here, and we have people helping us in Sweden as well, uh, from Brummer.
2: Fantastic. Yeah, of course. Uh, The connection with Brahma, of course. Alan, do you want to do one more round of uh, questions and then I'll do the usual sort of wrapping everything up at the end?
3: Sure. Maybe just want to wrap up. Um, You know, obviously, like the the last decade was seen as, you know, certain parts of it at least were tough for traditional trend following and, and the alternative markets performed i think more strongly uh trend following in, in alternative markets in that period um and people obviously tended to assign a narrative to that around you know less volatility in markets and central bank behavior etc i'm just curious you know in what kind of scenario might you get better performance in, in 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 trend following in the major markets and when might alternative markets struggle or what what kind of set of fa- uh, factors might lead to a you know, a a more pronounced drawdown in in trend following in alternative markets, do you think? Hmm. It's a good
0: question. Most of the scenarios where traditional standard market CTAs do very well, for example, uh, developed markets, equity crash or credit crisis, most of those scenarios would probably be pretty good for us but not quite so good. Even if you take a look at last year, okay, uh, the developed market CTAs were up 30, let's say, something like that, we were up 20, okay? In the previous year, we were up 30, and the developed market CTAs uh, uh, were considerably lower than that. So I would imagine that a scenario where some sort of credit crisis Super hard landing happens. The developed market CT and and it's focused on the U.S. or Europe. I would imagine that developed market CTAs might make thirty or forty percent. We'll probably make something like twenty because most of these trends spill over. On the other hand, if the crisis ends up being a crisis in China or an emerging market, a Latin American crisis or Turkey gets into trouble, I hope it doesn't. Or South Africa, we will make more money, probably, than the developed market CTA. It really depends on where the crisis is focused. We cast our net very, very widely. So it tends to it tends to be a somewhat smoother profile year after year. If we were to enter a very placid environment without much going on, that's a tough environment for any kind of trend follower. But I don't really see that kind of environment in the carts. But, you know, who knows? I don't have a crystal ball. But it seems to me that the sources of instability strongly outweigh the sources for stability. And so I think CTAs in general will do well. And I think we'll continue to do well. And I think the emerging markets, it's a very complicated world. I think diversification, getting back to the multipolarity point, diversification may be improving as the world becomes a little bit deglobalized into some separate supply chains and so forth, so we'll we'll have to see. But it's, it's not guaranteed that uh, alternative market CTAs outperform every year. But the, but we do have that edge of, of of much superior diversification to the standard medium speed uh,
2: trend followers. All right, Doc. We've touched a lot of uh, topics. I've got two questions left that uh, we tend to ask uh, everyone. So uh, I hope you. um, uh, So I don't know if you've listened to uh, to them before, but one of the things we're curious to know is to just find out, generally speaking, you know, what's the one thing you hear about trend following that you disagree with. The most Now, there's been a few that has been sort of mentioning the same topic. But if you think about what you hear people sometimes talk about tr- trend following, um, well, what are the things you tend to say, well, I definitely don't agree with that?
0: Well, there's one notion that it's, that it's easy to do. And there is this point that you can set up a basic trend following program um, in in the developed markets and trade some futures you know without a huge amount of overhead but there are a lot of things you have to get right and then when you get off into the world of alternative markets it is such a heavy operational lift that frankly folks really have no idea you know it's it's the it's a very very big part of what we do so this notion that trend following is so easy uh isn't correct and then there are a lot of important decisions to be made about model design and allocations and so forth, and running a really tight, well organized, precise, careful business is never easy. Okay, and so it, you know it's not. So I would say that would be uh, that would be uh, one thing that I think uh, people get wrong, and and I think there's also this notion that I, I, I think people saw the decline in the performance of of developed market trend following after the great financial crisis. And I think maybe they read a little too much into that because obviously we had entered a world where central banks were applying huge amounts of liquidity to the global economic system. And liquidity kind of fixes everything until it doesn't, you know, until it causes inflation, until it increases imbalances that ultimately end up breaking things. And, and so, yes, I think uh, the, the trends in general were weaker, uh, particularly in the developed markets over uh, that post-great financial crisis period. But I think we're returning to a more normal world. People can't get past their anchoring bias. and the no- And also the notion that there's a burst of volatility when trends reverse and change direction. That's a universal. The Minsky moments and the anchoring bias, they're here to stay. And so I think, I've, I don't think that trend following is in any sense obsolete. And I think that certainly when you apply it in relatively green pastures, in relatively fresh places, uh, I think
2: there's quite a lot left for the future. Yeah, and no, I was just going to say we certainly uh, agree with uh, with with your uh, positive outlook of, of trend following and the fact that it's been around for so long and it's most likely going to uh, to continue. So I'm not going to ask you to uh, to finish off what you're most excited about um, in in tw- looking into 2023 because I think you've you've uh, articulated that very well. So I'll, I'll instead just ask you if there's anything that you concerned about, something that might, you know, keep, I wouldn't say keep you up at night or awake at night, but is there something that you might think, well, I don't really like um, the potential of what what this, you know, whatever it might be, um, may, may bring us in, 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 in the rest of the year, so to speak? Well,
0: there are many things in the world that make me uneasy, but they don't make me uneasy because of the investment program. Okay. Uh, as, as someone who is legitimately long volatility in my view, most of the things that upset me about the world might actually be good for my uh, the profitability of our trading program. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very, I'm very concerned in general and I it's not a concern about my program, really, but I'm very concerned with how the war in Ukraine plays out. I think that Russia regards the matter as an existential matter for them. It's very, very important to Vladimir Putin and to, and to the leadership over there. The Ukrainians, on the other hand, have been so traumatized by this terrible war and this invasion that it will be very difficult for them to reach any compromise. And then the U.S. is is playing a role there that, well, you know, if you listen to, say, Jeffrey Sachs or Mearsheimer, may not be, you know, this, this is great power competition taking place on Ukrainian soil, not just... The sovereignty issues of Ukraine. So it's a very sad, complicated, tragic situation caused by, you know, in, in, uh, recently the, the, the Russian invasion. Uh, and I don't know how this thing gets revo- re- resolved. And it will have a tendency to escalate. It will have a tendency to escalate. And that concerns me a lot. Um, and I, I know you were, uh, the concern, you know, I don't have a big concern that volatility is going to die out for the, in my investment program and that markets are not going to move. That's not, a, that's not a, a huge concern of mine. Although maybe it'll end up being choppy. I, uh, but, uh, I think that I am certainly concerned that there's so much instability in the world. And, uh, a, a, a tremendous example of that is this terrible
2: situation uh, that it has happened. Exactly, I think we all share that, uh, Doc. This uh, this is a good note, a good time for us to uh, to wrap up a, a fascinating conversation, Doc. We really appreciate uh, you coming back on the podcast and sharing your your thoughts and and all of your insights, especially to the world of alternative markets, which is somewhat different to uh, some of the other guests we've had on. Uh, recently, um, and of course, we hope we can do this again sometime in the future. And to all of you listening in today, I hope that you were able to take something from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and your colleagues. From Alan and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged as we continue our deep dive into the CTA industry. And in the meantime, go check out the show notes for this episode and all the other resources that you can find on our website And not least, as usual, take care of yourself and take care of each other.
1: Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released.